Throughout much of the latter half of the 19th century and into the 20th, the British and the Russian empires were engaged in what the British called the Great Game, and what the Russians called the Tournament of Shadows. Essentially what had happened was over the previous century, the Russians had expanded their empire to include much of Central Asia. Meanwhile, the British had consolidated their control sort of haphazardly over India. By the 1840s, the British virtually controlled all of South Asia. So you've got that area in between the Russian Empire in Central Asia and the British Empire in South Asia. And so this became the, the, the battleground of the Great Game, or the, or the Tournament of Shadows. You can imagine from its position, Afghanistan becomes sort of the major battleground. There are other big-time big battlegrounds, particularly in Persia, but Afghanistan was the major battleground. Uh, the British will fight multiple wars in Afghanistan as part of the Great Game. When George Curzon came to India as Viceroy in 1898, he saw in Tibet sort of a similar potential buffer role that Afghanistan played for the British. See, the great British fear was that the Russians were expanding into Central Asia with their ultimate goal being to take over British India. Uh, the Russians, for their part, you know, they're expanding their empire. They want a buffer between their empire. Uh, you know, they want to secure their empire from that of the British. And they're also always seeking out a warm water port, maybe in the Arabian Sea. So that's sort of their, their goal. But the British, they're always afraid that the Russians are coming. Okay, so they want buffer. That's what the British want. That's what the British uh, sought to establish in Afghanistan. That's what Lord Curzon was hoping to establish in Tibet. Now, as closed off as they were, the Tibetans were already somewhat familiar with the British. You know, they were aware of earlier British wars against Himalayan states like Nepal and Bhutan. Now, Nepal and Bhutan had emerged from those wars against the British still independent, but they'd been bullied enough by the British to accept treaties advantageous to the British. And then there's Sikkim. Sikkim located right there between Nepal and Bhutan. Sikkim had basically been annexed by the British. Uh, its king basically made into a figurehead. And this was especially galling to the Tibetan government because Sikkim was officially a Tibetan protectorate. In fact, the Tibetans had actually sent troops to Sikkim to fight the British, to defend Sikkim, their, their protectorate. And there had been a few skirmishes, and of course the Tibetans had ultimately lost. So to the Tibetans already, the British were an enemy. In his first three years as Viceroy of India, Lord Curzon sent three letters to the Dalai Lama trying to get some sort of negotiations or communication going. But they were all returned sealed and unopened. So it was very frustrating for Curzon, especially since news and rumors seemed to indicate that the Russians might be setting themselves up in Tibet. See, there's this uh, Mongol a monk, a Buddhist monk, uh, spoke Russian. He traveled all over Europe, living in Lhasa. Apparently, he had the ear of the Dalai Lama. He convinced the Dalai Lama that maybe the Russians would be good partners for the Tibetans in arresting full official out-and-out -out independence from Qing China. Now, the reality was Tibet already was independent uh, on the ground, but on paper, the Qing were still making the claim. They still had a couple ambans in Lhasa, and so the Tibetans would have liked to make this independence official again. And so Dorjev was sent at the head of a diplomatic expedition to St. Petersburg to meet with the Tsar. Okay, so this is really worrisome to the great gamers of Britain, like Curzon. And uh, so, yeah, he, he goes all the way up to St. Petersburg. He does end up meeting with the Tsar. Nothing comes of the meeting. The Tsar makes 
zero promises to the Tibetans about an alliance or weapons or anything else. But this is, of course, blown out of context by the great gamers and newspapers make a really good story out of it. And it makes the situation seem that much more uh, drastic to Curzon. He's got to get this communication line open with the Tibetans. He's got to prevent the Russians from setting up shop there. Add to that, combine to that, uh, rumors coming out of Tibet from British Indian spies that the Russians have been stockpiling guns in Lhasa. You know, people are talking about a potential, you know, Russo-Tibetan invasion of India. It's gone a little crazy, but this is enough to convince Curzon that maybe it's time to contemplate an actual invasion of Tibet, both to curb supposed Russian influence as well as to get those Tibetans actually talking. Now, to lead the invasion, Curzon called on his friend, Francis Younghusband. Now, Francis Younghusband shared Curzon's love of the British Empire and belief in its inherent goodness to the world. But he's a little more, a lot more mystical than uh, Curzon was. He had mystical leanings. Uh, he would see in the Tibetan expedition sort of this exotic opportunity, and he held dreams of setting foot in Lhasa, so he's sort of the, the perfect guy to be gung-ho for such a, uh, an adventure. Well, he had orders to take 500 men to cross the border, go a few miles, set up a position, and then, you know, having shown some strength there, uh, negotiate with the Tibetans, get the Tibetans talking. Well, the plan didn't work. 500 troops did indeed cross the border. They did indeed set up a position there. But the Tibetans refused to talk until Francis' young husband and company retreated back across into Sikkim. A greater show of force would be required. A couple minor incidents were used as justification to launch a much larger invasion. They really were minor incidents. Some Tibetans crossed the border, Sikkimese border, into British-controlled territory and stole a couple of yaks. There were some spies, British spies, these Sikkimese, who were caught by the Tibetan government. Uh, this was used as justification to launch a much bigger invasion. This time, young husband would have 2,500 troops, mostly Sikhs and Gurkhas, led by British officers. Not to mention 10,000 sepoys. These are porters and support staff and whatnot. And their orders this time were to go much deeper into Tibet, all the way to Gyansi, on the road to Lhasa. It's actually the road I'm on right now. Go to Gyansi, bully the Tibetans enough, intimidate them enough to talk, to establish relations. Uh, actually, his orders were quite vague, and uh, this is going to help him later on. But So off they go. The Tibetans are divided in terms of what sort of response they should give to this invasion. Some of the Tibetans, some of the Dalai Lama's ministers, uh, one of, at least one of whom had visited British India, was somewhat aware of what the British were capable of, said, we need to negotiate. We can't fight these people. But they were overruled by the National Assembly. The National Assembly, these guys, including the abbots of the big monasteries, these guys didn't know what they were up against. They wanted to fight. And in fact, those ministers who would not support the war, who wanted to negotiate, they were ousted. False charges were brought up against them, and they were ousted and put in prison. So Tibet was going to fight. The Tibetans never stood a chance. Armed only with ancient matchlock rifles, and numbering about 1,500, they met the British at a village on the road to Gyansi, where I am right now. Uh, keep in mind, the British have 2,500 troops. They've got cannon, they've got Maxim guns. These are machine guns that are able to fire hundreds of times a minute. When they met, Francis' young husband assumed that, the, based on their demeanor and whatnot, that they had already surrendered. So he had his soldiers go to disarm them. And so when the Sikhs, in particular, tried to disarm these Tibetans, 
they didn't realize that these are their personal weapons. These aren't government-issued matchlock rifles. These are their, these are personal items, very valued in the Tibetan household. So there's some pushing and some shoving, and a gun went off, and you can imagine what happened. Those Maxim guns got going and ripped apart the Tibetans, and it was a massacre. Well, the British moved quickly on to Gyantse, and in Gyantse they made quick work of the hill fort in the city. In fact, it's this fort right here behind me. Unfortunately closed for renovation, so I couldn't get up there. But uh, quickly made short work of this of this fort. And at that point, it's pretty obvious, even to the most uh, ardent war hawk in the Tibetan government, that the Tibetans don't stand a chance against the British. The British could take over all of Tibet if they wanted to. So that they're going to have to talk. At that point, the Dalai Lama... He leaves. He flees with Dorjiv and others to Mongolia. He's afraid of becoming a stooge like the king of Sikkim had become. So he leaves. And even though there are those in the British government who from the beginning have been against this entire mission, young husband eventually receives permission to march on from here in Gyanti all the way to Lhasa. And so Francis young husband and his crack troops from the British Raj marched impressively through the Lhasa gates. Well, it turned out there were no Russians in Lhasa. Not one, not one Russian person in Lhasa. There were no Russian guns, and there was no evidence of any Russian attempt to establish some sort of alliance with the Tibetans. So all that fear-mongering that justified this invasion, this may sound familiar, all that fear-mongering turned out to be great game fantasy. There was no Tibeto-Russian army you know, being organized to invade India. There was no alliance at all. Well, a treaty was hammered out. Uh, the Tibetans were made to agree not to make treaties with any other country, which basically meant don't make a treaty with Russia. The British were allowed to set up a few you know, trade posts in Tibet, and that was that. Now, the historical ramifications of the Young Husband Expedition go far beyond the actual treaty that was hammered out. It greatly embarrassed Qing China. Okay, it completely exposed their lack of authority in Tibet. The Qing would double down on their efforts later to try and regain Tibet. Of course, they were going to fall within a few years, but later regimes, that of the Republic, and especially that of uh, you know, the communists, uh, looked at this expedition as proof that Tibet was vulnerable and that the, the potential for a British or an American-friendly uh, or allied Tibet you know, that could happen. And if so, then you, you, that, that would butt up against the Chinese heartland. So the Republic was very unsuccessful at roping Tibet in, obviously. Tibet was completely independent during that time. But Mao's regime, as soon as he'd taken over China, what did he do? He turned to Tibet, uh, haunted by the specter of a British or American-friendly or allied Tibet. And he sent his armies in. 